0: reading before our pastor bill comes up uh, to give us the word we'll be reading from jeremiah uh, chapter 44 verses 1 through 6 and another section of that chapter verses 15 through 23 you can follow along on the screen or uh, in your bibles in front of you this is the word of the lord the word that came to jeremiah concerning all the judeans who lived in the land of egypt at migdal at tapanes at Memphis, and in the land of Pathros. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, you have seen all the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem and upon all the cities of Judah. Behold, this day they are a desolation, and no one dwells in them. Because of the evil that they committed, provoking me to anger, and that they went to make offerings and serve other gods that they knew not, neither they nor you nor your fathers. Yet I persistently sent to you all my servants, the prophets, saying, Oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from their evil and make no offerings to other gods. Therefore my wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, and they became a waste and a desolation as at this day. Verse 15. Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods, and all the women who stood by, a great assembly, all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt, answered Jeremiah As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed make offerings to the queen of heaven, and pour out drink offerings to her. As we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials, in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the Queen of Heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. And the women said, When we made offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for her bearing her image and poured out drink offerings to her? Then Jeremiah said to all the people, men and women, all the people who had given him this answer, As for the offerings that you offered in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, you and your fathers, your kings and your officials, And the people of the land, did not the Lord remember them? Did it not come into his mind? The Lord could no longer bear your evil deeds and the abominations that you committed. Therefore, your land has become a desolation and a waste and a curse without inhabitant as it is this day. It is because you made offerings and because you sinned against the Lord and did not obey the voice of the Lord, or walk in his law and in his statutes and in his testimonies that this disaster has happened to you as at this day. This is God's word.
1: Good morning. We haven't had a chance to meet yet. My name is Bill Smith, I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Main Line. And we are in the middle of a Sunday morning teaching series on the authority and the sufficiency of the Word of God. Authority means that what God says is the highest, it's the loudest, most important voice, the voice that we listen to above all other voices. And sufficiency means that what God says is comprehensive. That in Scripture, he gives us everything that we need in order to think about every part of our lives. And as we've been going through this study over the last couple of weeks, we've seen that we need God's word because sin twists our minds so that we don't think well. Our minds end up leading us away from the Lord, away from leaving, living well, and we end up ruining our lives. We need God's word then to get us back on track so we think well again. We've also seen last week that God's word has real spiritual power, that all by itself, his word changes us, that the word of God is active and alive. It's life-transforming, so that as you hear more and more of what God has to say, you become more and more like him. You love what he loves, and you hate what he hates. In short, in three weeks, we've seen how comprehensive the word of God is, how necessary it is, how good and powerful it is, which is exactly today what we're going to need because you and I live in a world where there's competition to the Word of God and that competition goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden we learn there that Satan proposed to Adam and Eve that maybe they didn't need to listen to God's voice to his word because there were other voices other more appealing authorities out there that they could listen to like himself for instance Authorities that were not equal to God's authority, but authorities that, in Satan's view, were higher than God's authority. They were substitutes for God's authority. And they were authorities who were not simply higher, but they were equally sufficient. They were equally adequate for all of life. And ever since that moment, that has been the history of the human race. You and I live in a world where multiple voices speak to us. And each voice invites us to listen to that voice more than we listen to God. So if you're going to stand a chance of growing in your faith in this world, you need what you see here in chapter 44. We're going to look today and learn three things from this passage. First, you have to realize there is a constant war in this life for your mind. There's a constant battle over who you're going to listen to. Whose voice will you give allegiance to? Second, you have to realize that you can be persuaded to listen to something other than God, and sadly, you can be easily persuaded to listen to something other than God. And then third, you have to have some way to resolve this influence war. How do you resolve who you're going to listen to? So three things for today— Daily, you live in a war that's fought over whose voice you're going to listen to. You can be easily persuaded not to listen to God. And then how do we actually go about resolving that war? Let's dive in. We're looking today at the last recorded words of Jeremiah the prophet. Now, there are still a number of chapters in the rest of the book after this one. But if you go through each of those chapters, you discover that all of those prophecies are dated before this time period that you find in chapter 44. And so chapter 44 is effectively the end of Jeremiah's ministry. And what you learn there is that Jeremiah ended his ministry the way he began it, by confronting people over how they had abandoned the Lord because they thought that they could get something better by worshiping other gods. So in the very first chapter of the book, God promised that he was going to send judgment on all the towns of Judah for their wickedness and forsaking him. You learn that the people did not take God seriously when they first heard that message in chapter 1. And in chapter 44, which is about 40 years later, they're still not taking him seriously, even after judgment has happened. That's a snapshot of Jeremiah's ministry. For four decades he faithfully proclaimed god's word to the people that god loved the people that god rescued from egypt so that he would make them his own people and for four decades as jeremiah is proclaiming this word he sees very little spiritual fruit few people listened few people changed their lives in response instead as you read through the book of jeremiah you realize he encountered constant opposition to the extent that it was even physical. Physical persecution throughout his entire ministry, and it's physical here in chapter 44 as well. That opening verse tells you that he's proclaiming this word in Egypt. You think, why is he in Egypt? It's because earlier the king of Babylon had come and laid siege to Jerusalem. Israel had had a deal with Babylon, that they would be a loyal part of the Babylonian Empire, and then Israel rebelled. So Babylon came in and raised Jerusalem to the ground, deported most of the people back to Babylon, but they left a small remnant in the land. And that remnant came to Jeremiah, chapter 42, and they said, would you go to God for us? Would you hear the word of the Lord for us? Where should we go? What should we do? Jeremiah goes away for 10 days, comes back and says, here's the word of the Lord. God will bless you if you stay in Israel. And in response, the people tell Jeremiah, you're lying. God didn't say that. You're making that up. They say to Jeremiah, we're going to Egypt instead because that's a safer, better option. And by the way, Jeremiah, we're taking you with us. And so Jeremiah finds himself in Egypt with people who are actively disobeying the Lord, actively not listening to what God has said, but listening to someone else instead. That sets the stage for chapter 44. God speaks to the people one last time, tries one more time with them. Chapter 44, verse 2 Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel You have seen all the disaster that I brought upon Jerusalem and upon all the cities of Judah. Behold, this day they are a desolation and no one dwells in them, and as Pastor Dan read earlier, God goes on in that passage to spell out the reasons for that. It's because of the evil that the Israelites committed. They made offerings to other gods. They served other gods. Even though God had warned them, pleaded with them, and they wouldn't listen. And so he concludes, verse 6, Therefore my wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, And they became a waste and a desolation, as at this day. God says, here's how it is. Here's the truth. Here's what the world is really like. Here's the framework for how you understand your lives. This is how you need to think about what you've experienced. I judged Jerusalem. I made it a waste and a desolation because of your idolatry. And the people hear this declaration of how God thinks. And they respond immediately, paraphrasing. They say, no, that's not the truth. Here's the real truth. Everything was fine as long as we made offerings to the Queen of Heaven. But when we stopped, probably referring there to some of the reformation that came in under King Josiah. When we stopped, that's when everything went south. That's the real truth. What ruined Jerusalem was being faithless to her, not being faithless to the Lord. Now think about what you're hearing. You have two completely different narratives that talk about the same historical reality. And having those two narratives side by side should sober you both God and the people are looking at the same historical events, the same facts, if you will. But they have different contexts, different frameworks, different worldviews, different lenses that those facts are embedded into. And those different frameworks are completely different. The way the people look at the world, the way they view it is completely different from how God looks at the world and views it. Those two views are at odds with each other so that there is no common ground in between. There's no place where you could stand on one side, look across at the other one, and say, you know what, I, I, I can kind of see it your way. Instead, those voices each say, here's how to think about what happened. God's voice and the people's voice. Those two are in competition with each other. That's because nobody ever looks at the facts of history without some kind of frame of reference, some kind of filter, some kind of interpretive worldview. And it's important to realize here that neither worldview comes from within the actual events. Your viewpoint is not read out of the events. It's used to interpret them. It's read onto them. You're learning from this passage as you see these two side by side that we never approach historical realities and read the truth out of them. Instead, we come to them with a certain understanding of reality developed from the outside. And we use that understanding to do two things. First, we use it to make sense out of what it is that we're actually seeing. How do we think about this? And then second we use it to tell us what should we do next with what we're seeing in that sense there's no cold hard neutral objective reality that we all have access to instead we each come to life with certain understandings certain expectations that then influence what we do and do not see and we all do that god does that the people do that you and I do that the modern world does that the modern world at least the modern scientific world wants to argue for objective reality that we can simply look at something for what it is that we can see it for what it is <laughs> but if you think about it you realize that's just another worldview that also brings with it its own understandings and expectations. Let me see if I can get us on board with this. Think about it this way. If you tried to say something that would sound more neutral, something like, here's the cold, hard reality. Let's distill this down to its essence. Jerusalem was destroyed by Babylon. If you try that minimalist, just the facts, ma'am, approach, you've left something important out. You've left out the entire spiritual realm. You've said spiritual realm is not important. That it has no bearing on what we're actually looking at. And so we don't need to reference it when we talk about what happened. In other words, you're saying that whether the Lord or the Queen of Heaven exists, his or her existence has no bearing on what happened between Israel and Babylon. Babylon. That is not neutral. That's not objective. That's a worldview. That's a voice that tells you what to pay attention to and what to ignore. In that sense, that voice shapes the facts. It defines the facts. It tells you this counts as a fact, this does not count as a fact. This is important, this is not. And because it counts out the spiritual dimension, it's going to have to give you a different reason then for why Jerusalem is destroyed, why her people are either in Babylon or in Egypt. So maybe it'll talk about raw human power or it'll talk about the politics of the day. Those will be the responsible cause for why Jerusalem is destroyed and her people scattered, not some deity. In other words, the modern world has a worldview that's no more neutral and objective than what you find at any other time and place throughout history, all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And you have to understand that because this modern worldview is just as evangelistic as any other, it promotes its way of thinking. It tries to influence your understanding of the historical event and say, this spiritual realm that you can, you just factor that out. Tries to get you to listen to it and not listen to any other voice. It just hides that agenda behind the facade of objectivity and neutrality. In other words, what God is exposing there in Jeremiah 44 is the reality that you and I encounter every single day as we live in a broken world. We live surrounded by voices that are always trying to tell us, to listen to them, as they try to tell us, here's how you should think about your life and about the larger world. We live in a world of voices that compete for our minds. And in his grace and kindness, God, in chapter 44, spells out, here's what that competition sounds like. God claims that his word gives you the definitive way of understanding reality. And he tells you that it's comprehensive enough to understand what is happening right in front of you. And the people say, no. There's another way to understand this. There's another voice to listen to. And they recognize those two voices are not equal. The people say, this other voice that we're listening to, that's higher than what God has said. And so, Jeremiah, this time, you're not mistaken. We said that in chapter 42. We said that you were lying. That's not true. Instead, verse 16, chapter 44, we know that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. We know that what you're saying is the word of the Lord, but verse 16, we will not listen to you. There's another word out there. We're going to listen to that one instead. We're gonna give that one greater authority in our lives than this one that the Lord has spoken. The people understand that the two voices, their voice and God's voice, those two voices are incompatible with each other. We'll see in a minute that God agrees with them, agrees that there's no middle ground, there's no compromise. You realize, well, how can there be? Those voices go in so completely different directions. Why are the people in Egypt? It's either because pouring out offerings to the queen of heaven was bad and they didn't stop, or offering to her was good, but they did stop. There's no middle ground between those two. So either it was appropriate worship, it was good worship of her, or verse 4, it was evil, it was an abomination against God. There's no middle ground. That means that the former prosperity that they enjoyed was what? It was either the blessing of the queen of heaven, that was her reward for their worship, or it was the patience of God as he pleaded with them to turn from idolatry. It's blessing or forbearance, no middle ground. And so now the future is completely different. They should either start making offerings to her again, pouring out drink offerings to her again, or they should repent and listen to the voice of this incredibly gracious God who's trying to call them back one more time. See, the voice that you listen to is crucial. It tells you how to look at life, how to think about what's going on in your life, and it tells you what to do next to either move toward the Lord of hosts or away from Him. It's nothing in between. You can't blend those voices. You can't make them fit together. That's the nature of a worldview. Worldviews are always comprehensive. They claim to be sufficient for every area of life. They claim authority over every area of life, which means you have to make a choice between them. That's why God pronounces judgment again on these people. We didn't read the end of the chapter. But after it's very clear that the people firmly reject God's perspective, after they say, verse 17, that they are absolutely going to worship the queen of heaven like they vowed, God tells them, verse 25, then confirm your vows. Perform your vows. Pour out your offerings to her like you promised. But realize, verse 27, that I am watching over you now for disaster and not for good. All the men of Judah who are in the land of Egypt shall be consumed by the sword and by famine until there is an end of them. And those who escape the sword shall return from the land of Egypt to the land of Judah, few in number. And all the remnant of Judah who came to the land of Egypt to live shall know whose word will stand, mine or theirs. God understands their word, his word, they're incompatible. But he also understands they're not equal. They're not equally valid perspectives, not equally truthful. And so because it's his world and because he really does know what's true in his world, he's going to allow it to be clear. He'll make it clear which one truly represents reality, which word stands, which voice is truthful. He's going to make clear whether idolatry is the key to a good life, as they've said, or whether idolatry will destroy you, like he says. This chapter ends with a really hard word of judgment. Keep it in context, because this is not where God started. He's been incredibly patient, He's spoken to them through Jeremiah alone for over 40 years. He's warned them over and over and over. He's pleaded with them. He got really embarrassing in verse 4, vulnerable. He begged them, oh, do not do the abomination that I hate. You can't see any more of his heart. He's put it all out there, and they didn't listen for decades. And then he still pursued them, kept talking to them while they're in Egypt, just so they could have one more chance to hear him you realize this is a God who really wants what's best for them. He doesn't want them to ruin their lives. And yet they've told him over and over and over that they want to listen to someone else. And so finally he says, okay, you want to listen to someone else that badly? Someone who will lead you away from me, from the source of all life and goodness, which means what, you're being led into ruin, into destruction. That's really what you want? You can have it. Almost none of you will ever return to Judah. And everyone will know then whose word is really true and whose isn't. Brothers and sisters, that's the world you live in. It's a world where there is a war for your mind a battle over who you will listen to, over whose voice will influence how you understand this world, how you respond to it, and it's a battle with very real consequences if you pick the wrong voice. That's point one. Point two, it's actually worse than that because it's really easy for you and me to be persuaded not to listen to God because we come primed To listen to something else. See, the people unpack in this passage why they're not going to listen to God, why they want to listen to someone else. They tell Jeremiah verse 17, we will do everything that we have vowed, make offerings to the Queen of Heaven, pour out drink offerings to her as we did, dropping down, for then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and been consumed by the sword and by famine. They decided who they're going to listen to on the basis of what they want. What is it that they long for? What what do they desire? It's plenty of food, prosperity, and security. And if that's what you want, above all other things, God's words are always going to sound like they come up short when you compare him to the queen of heaven who's the queen of heaven she was a goddess of war and fertility she promised her worshippers a good life food comfort security the same thing things that egypt offered and so the people moved toward her because god's words didn't promise those same things instead god's words promised judgment for their faithlessness The Old Testament scholar Christopher Wright put it this way. The people believed that their gods brought prosperity while the God of the Bible just brought trouble. And so they settle the matter of who to listen to. Who will we worship? They settle it by using pragmatism. Worshiping the goddess seems to work. It seems to give them a good life. Worshiping the Lord, following King Josiah's reforms, that's only brought them misery. And so they conclude goddess worship works it produces results and so they don't ask the question what is true what is right should we worship this goddess instead they ask what works what gives me the outcome that i want when i listen to god it isn't working life is not working the way i want it to not like when i listen to the goddess. So what's their real authority? It's pragmatism, not truth. They place pragmatism over scripture and they use pragmatism to evaluate scripture. They ask, is it working? Does scripture get me what I want? And they never stop to think. They never stop to question is what I want? The most important thing for me to want? Is what I want the right thing? Or should I want something else? Is there something better to want? They don't ask questions like that. Instead, they just take what they want as a given. They assume that what they want in the way that they want it is good to want. And then they evaluate God's word on the basis of whether or not it gives them what they want. They put their word, their authority over God's. And in this case, they find that God's word doesn't work. It's not working. It doesn't give them what they want. And so they say, verse 16, we will not listen to the word you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord. And you realize that if their wants were different, God's word would work. If what they wanted more than anything else was to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, His word would work. It would guide them so that they could glorify God and enjoy Him all the time, regardless of what's happening to them. Glorify and enjoy Him, even when life is not at all what they wanted. See, it's not God's word that failed them. It's that they wanted things in a way that God never promised them. And they didn't want the goodness that He had promised So they elevated their word over his and judged him because he didn't measure up to their word. We do that in lots of ways. Some of us are like the Israelites. We choose pragmatism, what works over truth. Others of us elevate popularity as our highest value. We put popularity over scripture. We ask, if I listen to God, will I be popular with my peers? popular with my society? And if the answer is no, well, we'll find a different voice to listen to. Others of us don't want to be popular. We want to be sophisticated. We want to be seen as cultured, with it, modern. And so we ask, if I listen to God, will people think I'm sophisticated? And if not, who else Can I listen to? Others of us want power more than we want truth. And so we ask if I listen to God, will I be able to get things done? Will my life turn out the way that I planned for it to turn out? Will I be a mover and shaker? Because if not, there are other voices to listen to. Others of us place expertise over truth. And so we ask if God's voice agrees with the current knowledge in any given field. Does it agree with science? Does it agree with the experts? And if it doesn't, then we just turn that part of God's word off. Because those parts are not up to speed with what we've been taught. Others of us place tradition over truth. We stop listening to God whenever something comes up that makes us think, that's not the way we did it before. Those are all different kinds of authorities that we put over God's word and use those authorities to assess what we hear him say in scripture. Anytime you place something over God's word, you know where it's going to end. It ends with you at some point in chapter 44 saying with the Israelites in Egypt, as for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. Why? Because that thing, pragmatism, popularity, sophistication, power, expertise, tradition, that thing is my real authority. If you look for an outside authority to prove to you that scripture is right, that other thing is more important to you than scripture. That is your new highest authority. And so you're left with a choice in this passage. You can embrace the word of God on its own terms as the foremost authority over every area of your life. Or you can choose not to listen to it because you're already listening to something else instead. At which point I can imagine someone saying, hold on a minute, that sounds kind of circular. If there's no outside authority over Scripture, isn't that like saying God says Scripture is His Word and Scripture tells me to listen to God? How how am I supposed to know that that's true? Why would I believe that over all these other things that feel so much more real? Pragmatism, popularity, sophistication, whatever. Am I just supposed to take a blind leap of faith? say that I believe Scripture is real, it's the Word of God, because I believe it is? I'd say no. You handle Scripture just like you handle what anyone tells you. You believe the words because you believe the one who says them. You believe the message because you believe the messenger. That's point three. It's how you resolve who you should listen to. Think about Jeremiah, think about his life. You realize he got absolutely nothing out of carrying this message. The pastor scholar Phil Riken summarizes Jeremiah's life. It's, It's a devastating paragraph. He writes that Jeremiah was ignored, rejected, scorned and humiliated, beaten, imprisoned, put in the stocks, falsely accused and condemned as a traitor twice he was cast into a dungeon and left for dead that's an awful life and now here he is in exile carried away by people who want nothing to do with the god that he speaks for what's in it for him absolutely nothing except a life of misery nothing in jeremiah's life looks like it works If what you want is an easy, comfortable life, do not listen to what God says through Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah didn't have that life. Which, if you think about it, is is exactly why you should believe that what he says are God's words and not his own. He gains nothing for speaking for God. No popularity, no wealth, no power. Yes, everything that he predicts comes true. He is a true prophet, but what he predicts is awful. All the facts are on his, of history are on his side, but he gets nothing out of it. In that sense, his life is an evidence that says this is true. Because nobody in his right mind would hang on to this for 40 plus years if it wasn't true. His life points you to the truth of what God says to him, through him. But even more, it points to the truth of who Jesus is. Because if Jeremiah was a suffering servant of God, what he really points you to is the suffering servant of God. He points to Jesus, whose life was also defined by being constantly rejected until he too was imprisoned and executed, all while doing what? Holding tightly to Scripture. Jesus claimed that all of Scripture pointed to him and to what he came to do on the earth. Jesus obeyed all of the Scripture, even that, when that meant his life was miserable. And you know that it's the guiding voice in his head because it just kept coming out of him throughout his entire life. Read the Gospels. He's constantly quoting Scripture. He uses it to understand life, to interpret life. He listens to how it tells him to live his life. Read his life, and you're just amazed at how it pours out of him, especially at the worst times of his life. At the most pressure-packed moments, when he is squeezed harder than you can imagine, when what comes out of him is what he's got to be holding on to most tightly, most important to him, what comes out of him is Scripture. Listen to him on the road to the cross, or when he's on the cross himself, and what you hear are quotations from Scripture. As one pastor put it, on the cross he bleeds Scripture, just like he did all of his life. Why should you prioritize Scripture over every other voice in life? It's simple. You do, because Jesus did. If you're going to follow Jesus, if you're going to listen to him, you have to listen to the voice then that he listened to. So if you are in the middle of chapter 44 and you're not really sure, how do I resolve this? Settle the question of what you believe about Jesus first. Because if Jesus is who he says he is, then, I'm sorry, if Jesus is not who he says he is, then who cares what he thinks? about scripture or anything else. But if he is who he claims to be, if he is the Lord of creation, if he is this world's maker and redeemer, then you follow scripture because you follow him. How do you go about settling what you think about him? Do this. Start with the gospels. They claim to be eyewitness accounts. So look at them and then ask, if these are not, if they're not true accounts, if they're not, actual events if they're just made up why do they have all those details in them we talk about this a lot here at renewal if the gospels are not true why do they have all that extra stuff in there like names of people that you never hear from again numbers of things like how many fish got caught or what time of day it was See, those are the kind of things that we would put into a modern novel. That sort of makes it a little bit more full, we think. That kind of writing did not exist back then. Instead, if you read made-up stories, legends, myths, every detail in them made a point. It moved the story along. The only time ancient people recorded details that were irrelevant to the story was in a report, in an eyewitness account. And then in the eyewitness accounts, you come up with all these extra details. Why? Because that's what the person saw. That's what happened. Read the Gospels and you'll see that they're the product of telling you, uh, they're the product of someone saying to you, this is what I experienced. Or read the Gospels and think about how bizarre it is that the founders of the new Christian religious movement did not believe Jesus. Didn't believe him when he taught them about the most important part of his ministry. That he had to suffer, die, and rise again three days later. That he would receive God's final standing word of judgment for you and me. For the times when we've not listened to God. So that what? So that we could return out of exile to God. Jesus talked about those things regularly. And his disciples didn't believe him. How do you account for that? How do you account for them telling him that he's wrong? Not going to check to see if he actually rose that first Easter morning. How do you explain that? Unless it actually happened. Unless that's really the way it was. Or you can think about a passage like 1 Corinthians 15 when Paul tells you that at one point in time over 500 people saw Jesus risen from the dead. And then you can go talk to those people if you want because many of them are still alive that's compelling why one person can be deluded he or she can claim that they saw something that they really didn't mass delusions don't happen An entire crowd of people don't all see something that isn't there paul wrote that about two decades after the resurrection it would have been really easy to disprove him or call him a liar really easy to go and check with those people you wouldn't hang your ministry credentials on something so flimsy. (laughs) You would not take that risk. Unless what? Unless it really happened. Unless at the same time over 500 people saw Jesus risen from the dead. Do all of those things prove the Bible is true? No. But if you still want to argue that the gospel is just a nice story, that it's a fairy tale that someone made up, then it is up to you then to explain All the evidence that points to it being historically accurate. So start there. Wrestle with the historical reality of the gospel accounts. And then think about what you read. Because what you find in the gospels is the most amazing man. You find someone with this incredible character. Someone who cared deeply about the marginalized. He enjoyed people that society was ready to throw away. He ate with people who were labeled tax collectors and sinners. He rescued impoverished people. He healed horrible, debilitating diseases, stood up to the religious elite, and never, ever once did anything wrong that people could point out and make the accusation stick. And yet this same amazing man with this incredible character said the most bizarre things that no sane human being would ever think of saying. He said he could forgive sin. That's something only God can do. He said that before Abraham ever existed, that he already had. He said God was his very own father, not his creator, but his father. People got the point that he was putting himself in the same plane with God because they thought he was blaspheming. They tried to kill him when he said things like that. How do you bring those two things together? Jesus' character and his claims his selfless, serving nature, and his claims of deity. You can try to say, well, he was a liar. You know, maybe he was an intentional con man, maybe just deceived, maybe he was crazy. But then you look at his life and you realize, no, no, no con man, no crazy person ever loved people like he did. Never taught things that were so spot on helpful that people thought he was a great teacher. If you decide he's lying or deceived, again, it's up to you to explain why he doesn't act like a charlatan, why he doesn't act like a lunatic, why he doesn't benefit by ripping people off and why so many people just wanted to be with him. And if, as you read, you decide he isn't lying, he's not crazy, he's telling the truth. then what you're left with is that he really is the son of God. Come in this world to reconcile it, to reconcile you back to God. So that what? So that now, with all your heart, you want to listen to this God like you listen to no one else, to listen like you always needed to and now like you absolutely want to. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you did not wait for us to come near to you, but you put aside all of your glory, all of your majesty, and you came to us. You came to us when we rejected everything you had to say. Lord, that's true historically. That's true individually. It's true of my life. It's true of my brothers and sisters. It's true of those who don't yet know you. And yet, Lord, you are persistent and gracious and kind and patient. Open our ears today so we hear you. And give us hearts that love what we hear. In Jesus' name, amen.